Hey everyone, welcome to the 250th episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. Well, technically it was Scale Up, your business, and then it became Scale Up with Nick Bradley. But listen, hey, it's still the 250th episode and today we are here to celebrate and you are in for a lot of fun. But before we get to that, a quick announcement. So many of you have watched my keynote speech from Tampa last year on my YouTube channel, How to Scale Your Business and Achieve a Life-Changing Exit. So thank you for everyone who's watched that for the amazing feedback. Now, it's only a short video and many of you have asked that I go a little bit deeper into how you actually do it. So I'm pleased to announce that on Thursday, May 12th, I'll be running a live workshop on the full scale to sale methodology for business owners that are looking to scale fast, build value, and eventually exit for the highest multiple. Now, if you're interested, there will be details in the show notes from this episode, or you can reach out and send me a direct message on LinkedIn and I will provide the details. Now, the workshop is absolutely free. So if this sounds like it's going to help you, please get in touch. Alrighty, back to the episode, the 250th. Let me ask you this. Would you rather mean a little to everyone or something important to a select few? Would you prefer finding yourself needing to make a living or to find yourself creating greater impact in the world and making an income from it as a bonus? Now, these are not random questions. In fact, they are critically important as we scale up not only our business, but also our life. And just perhaps, just perhaps we're not asking ourselves these types of questions often enough these days. Well, today's guests believe that is the case. You see, Seth Godin, today's guest, has been asking these crucial questions for years and has authored over 20 best-selling books written thousands of blog posts. I think he's recorded just as many podcast episodes, not to mention programs and courses that have made a huge impact in the world of entrepreneurship. In fact, his daily blog is so good, I have subscribed to it for years. In fact, I think it's a decade. Needless to say, I am a huge fan of the man. Scale is no longer a plus, it's minus. And it is cheaper and more effective to make something for someone than to make something for everyone. So I would say the biggest shift is this idea of choosing to be meaningful as opposed to being generic. In 2013, he was one of just three professionals inducted into the Direct Marketing Hall of Fame. And in 2018, he was inducted into the Marketing Hall of Fame as well. But regardless of this success, this recognition, Seth is just someone who prides himself on being a teacher. In his own words, someone who turns on lights for people and helps them see how to make things better by making things better. I'm trying to turn on lights for people and help them see how to make things better by making better things. Simple, yet powerful, which in my opinion highlights an incredibly important mission. Now, we go into so many different things here. It's not a long episode, but we touch on some very, very important topics. And I think as you are thinking about your business, some of the wisdom, some of the thoughts from Seth are really, really going to help you. So without further ado, welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, episode 250, Mr. Seth Godin. And to all my listeners, thank you for helping me reach this milestone. It's you guys that inspire me day in, day out, 
and it's why I do the show. Okay, let's go for it. Hey everybody, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up. In fact, welcome to a very special episode of Scale Up because this is the 250th episode of the show. Years ago, when I sat in a darkened room talking to the wrong end of a microphone, I didn't quite expect to get to this point, but we're here. And today we have someone very, very special on the show. A person who in the world of business and marketing needs no introduction and has personally made a huge impact on me, both with my ideas, my thinking and my success in business. So I'd like to welcome none other than Seth Godin to Scale Up. Welcome, sir. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Nick. So as I said before we pressed play, I sort of asked people about, you know, what would they like to ask Seth Godin coming onto the show? And then I sort of appreciated the fact that some people may not know who Seth Godin is, not many people in the world of business. But my first question to you is, who is Seth Godin? It makes me very pleased if people don't know who I am. My goal is not to be better known. Um, I'm just a guy. I am a teacher and I've started some businesses and I've written some books, but mostly I'm a teacher. I'm trying to turn on lights for people and help them see how to make things better by making better things. Wow. Okay. And what's inspired you to do that over so many years? You know, obviously, you know, what was the, what was the beginning of that for you? Um, it probably uh, started in 1977 up in Northern Canada, helping uh, kids who had been spoiled with privilege for a long time, come to grips with the fact that they had more power, authority, and leverage than they thought they did and helping them see that they were capable of making a difference. And I discovered early on that I would rather uh, encourage and applaud people who were doing extraordinary things than necessarily push myself to win any given competition. Right. And was that something that, was there someone who influenced you in that way as well, that, that, that you know, helped shape that direction? Um, I think that many of us are exposed to um, people in our lives, in my case, my parents and others who care about us, who turn on lights for us. The question is, what are we going to do with it? And lots of people didn't have nearly as many opportunities as I did, but all of us have people we can see in the world who we can model. And I think it might be a trap to think that just because we didn't have a particular interaction at a certain age, we're not permitted to care and to lean into it and to lead. Um, so I'd like to believe that the door is open for people to, to do this if they want to. Yeah, great. Fantastic. And as, as I said, from the outset, you know, certainly um, some of your early books and, and most of the things that you've put out there have, have inspired a lot of the things that I've done in my career. I'd like to talk a little bit about marketing specifically, because that's where, I mean, my background was that I used to, um, to work for Coca-Cola back in the late nineties. And then I had a whole career in branding for my sins. Um, in your opinion, how has marketing changed over the last two decades? Well, <clears throat> I think there are two giant differences. The biggest one is that marketing and advertising used to be the same thing. Yeah. And people still misunderstand this. They say, we're going to do a big marketing campaign when actually they mean they're going to do a big advertising campaign. Um, they were the same thing because advertising was a miracle. And there were only three TV networks, only 20 magazines that, that mattered. If you spent enough money on ads, you were going to make money. It was, you didn't have to be good at it. You just had to spend a lot. And 20 years ago, that all started to fall apart. And then the second thing 
is that in the face of it falling apart, selfish, self-absorbed, narcissistic, short-term thinking marketers, not all, some, um, said, well, I got to hustle because I'm entitled. And so marketing started to use, be used as a hack, to be used as a, a way to push people to do things they didn't want to do. And I've tried to carve out a different kind of marketing, which is this idea of telling true stories that spread, that the network effect is one of the most powerful things that's ever struck humanity. And good marketers use the network effect to create community motion, motion that makes things better. Okay. And do you think then that, um, I suppose, the core principle, principles of outstanding marketing have not changed that much? Well, <clears throat> the core, sorry, I'm fighting off a cold. The core oh, principle good. of marketing used to be to make average stuff for average people and do it loudly. And that was Chevrolet and Tropicana and all the way up to Nike. Average stuff for average people at scale. Because at scale, factories work better and retailers work better and advertising works better. And what has shifted is scale is no longer a plus, it's minus. And it is cheaper and more effective to make something for someone than to make something for everyone. So I would say the biggest mm. shift is this idea of choosing to be meaningful as opposed to being generic. Yeah, and this is, this is where I wanted to kind of play around because some of the stuff that you talk about is the exact opposite of some of the things we're seeing, right? And, and the reason I bring up the point of principles and things like that is you've talked about the importance of trust, community, meaning a lot to someone, you know, not a little to everyone. But then you contrast that, the paradox of influences and social media and, you know, all this sort of thing. Where, where, do, you, where do you stand on that? I mean, the question really is, you know, what are some of the things that I suppose you really love about what people are doing now? And what are some of the things that you hate? Well, you know, it's interesting because the name of the show is Scale Up. And mm. we should think about what the word up even means. Up doesn't mean scale average or scale big. It means move in a direction toward better. And people would like to pretend that social media is a mass marketing tool, but it's not. That MASH, when it went off the air all those years ago, had 60 or 70 million people in the United States watching it. I am there old is, enough to believe to remember that, by the way. I don't look yeah, it, but I am. <laughs> exactly. And there is not one, not one channel on the internet, not one social media account that reaches that many people all these years later. That mass is gone. Yeah, that if wow. you're if you got three or four million people following you online, that's a big, big win. Three or four million. That would have gotten you canceled on any television network. I think people forget this or didn't have exposure to it because I, you know, I remember when you, when you had less options, right. You know, like there was like, you know, back in Australia where I grew up, you had four TV channels. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was it. Right. And Saturday night you sat down and you just kind of watched pretty much one. Right? Exactly. But these days the proliferation of media and my, I didn't sort of go into this, but my background was working for magazines and all sorts of stuff. So I saw a lot of transition in media for many years, you know, you've got so much choice now. So you're right. You know, people forget that, the big TV shows had millions and millions, you know, in that sort of thing. But, you know, the, I, the, thing, the thing that's always struck me about your work um, has always been this idea of, of not focusing on going after the big audiences necessarily, focusing on meaning a lot, as I said, to that some person. And then by being genuine and being authentic and those sort of things, it's, it has its own scale, right? But 
But how does that work in, in the way that you think about it? I just want to unpack that a little bit because lots of people come to me, business owners and such, and they say, I want to go big. I want to go big as quickly as I can. I want to reach as many people. But as I said, your view of it, that's the wrong strategy. That's the wrong approach, if I'm right. Well, they're hiding. So, you know, there are so many examples I can give them. Would you rather be the monkeys or would you rather be Bob Dylan or Elvis Costello, right? That when you are a meaningful specific, you're on the hook. And that's scary to be on the hook. If you say, I only have a thousand fans, they better like this. It's different than saying, oh, I make it for lots and lots of people. I, 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 if someone doesn't like it, I'll just go on to the next person. Putting yourself on the hook to be meaningful is frightening, but super valuable. That what I am arguing is that almost nobody reaches the masses. Even Starbucks doesn't reach the masses. That my blog, I've written 20 bestsellers in a row. My blog is one of the most popular in the world. By a rounding error, I have 0% market share. That in the US, 300 million people, fewer than a million people read one of my books. That means that 0% of the population reads my work. Fine, because it's enough. And the people who say, no, I need to win whatever chart is on offer and I need to reach everyone have also signed up to being mediocre because it's the same word. Average and mediocre mean the same thing. Do you see, do you see a bit of a, an epidemic, if you want to call it that, happening with things like social media and people trying to get followers, you know, spend more money on Facebook ads? Do you see that as a big issue? Okay, so those, I guess those are two questions. The first question is, um, if you're using social media, are you the customer or are you the product? <laughs> yeah. And most people who use social media are the product. They are being sold to other people. That social media deliberately makes you insecure and unhappy so that you will come back and do it more. They push you to press the boost button, which is how they make money so that you'll become a customer so you will do it more. They put numbers in front of you and create um, you know, these cycles of chemical reactions in our brain, so we will do it more. And the question is, do you work for Mark and Cheryl or do you work for you? Do you wanna use it in a way that helps you get what you want or do you wanna use it in a way that somebody you don't even know decided is the way you're supposed to use it? And so there's all these people wringing their hands about the future of this and the future of Twitter and the future of Facebook that's not your problem. Your problem is who would miss you if you were gone? Where are the people, maybe it's a thousand, who are true fans, as my friend Kevin Kelly would say, who would show up with a hundred bucks if you needed them to? Because if you've got a thousand people who are willing to pay you a hundred dollars a year for something, you can make it as a freelancer for the rest of your life. And if you're a company with customers and you've got 20,000 of those people, you're in, that's it, you won. And most of the people I see who are hustling because they want to reach everyone, they don't even have 20 true fans because they're not doing anything that's important. They're just making a lot of noise. Yeah. Okay. And that's also not going to be well sustainable, is it? You know, because I, I, mean, I was listening to one of your episodes of your podcast, um, the Lemonade Stand one, actually, which is a great question by that 11-year-old girl from New Zealand. And you said that the people are trying to chase, you know, millions of, you know, potential purchases from people, but to be successful, as you said, you don't need to even do that. But I think the thing I notice is that, that there seems to be this, this confusion that's happening out there that, you know, maybe people are being brainwashed to think that that's the way that you have to be successful by having more. 
but not appreciating how we started this conversation saying that it's nothing like what it used to be. So when you're advising, you know, businesses or people are reaching out to you and you're sharing that, you know, what, what are the key messages that you're saying to them? Well, I'm not advising people in the sense that I have clients, but what I am saying to people in my books is, do you have a smallest viable audience? Do you stand for something? Are you helping them become who they wish to become? Are you creating the conditions where their lives will get better if they talk about what you do? So, you know, if we think about this podcast, 250 episodes in, congratulations. Did you get the audience you have by running ads all over the place? I don't think so. How did the audience arrive? The audience arrived because some of your listeners told other people that they should listen. Why would they do that? Do they know you? Are you paying them? They do it because their status goes up or their affiliation with their friends goes up because they brought other people something that made everyone's life better when they spread the word. So your job was to create the conditions for that to happen. And then other people spread the word, which is not the way it used to work. The way it used to work, if you wanted someone to buy Coke or if you wanted someone to buy a Chevy, you ran ads. You spent money to interrupt strangers. And the network effect says, nope, don't do that. Spend money to make a product or a service that people want to talk about, something remarkable. And I think to some extent, people are impatient. Because if I go back to when I started this, you know, as you brought it up, I didn't do it necessarily to build an audience. I did it to tell my story partly for myself because it was cathartic. I'd gone through a, a whole heap of different things with my private equity background. And um, I literally was talking into a, into a microphone in a dark room, but I did have one thought, right? And that one thought was, if this could help one person, right? If one person hears this message, you know, the right message at the right time can change anything for someone, then my job was done. That was my thought, right? And to be frank, I haven't really moved away from that since I started this show. But mm -hmm. what I haven't really connected with, and this is why it's an interesting conversation just for me personally here, is the network effect or the effect in general that that has then happened to now have, you know, thousands and thousands of people download the show. I suppose I wasn't really thinking about that outcome. And that's maybe why it has been successful. Well, I think that it is possible to accidentally succeed at this. Mm. But I also know that doing it on purpose increases the chances you will succeed at it if you mean well. If you are trying to manipulate people, not so much, right? But when you think about the elements of what you are bringing to the table, how you bring the next level and the next level and the next level, you know, something as simple as I do Q&A on my podcast. Yeah. Part of the reason I do Q&A on my podcast is I really like to answer people's questions. Part of the reason I do Q&A is it's more remarkable. And if someone asks a question and I answer it, they're going to tell 20 friends. And I'm not manipulating them into asking questions. I'm doing it to be of service. But it's also true that in 225 episodes, I've answered 500 questions. And if each person tells 10 people, do the math, right? right. That we, we can build into the things we make. In the U.S., there's a chain of donut stores called Krispy Kreme. Yeah. And Krispy Kreme grew like lightning. And they did two interesting things after they made donuts that were sort of optimized to blow people away, right? 
the first thing they did was they didn't make a lot of donuts. So you needed to get in line. And the second thing they did was they priced it so you would buy 12. If you buy 12 donuts, unless there's something seriously wrong with you, you're not going to eat all 12 in the parking lot. You're going to share them. By building a box designed to share where you can say to somebody, I worked to get these donuts. I waited in line to get these donuts. Want one? Your status, your affiliation goes up when you share a Krispy Kreme donut. The first rule of of Krispy Kreme is give some to your friends. Okay. That spreads the idea. And one of the things I was looking at that you said um, in your um, in your book, you know, this is marketing, um, which is behind me that you can see, was this idea that um, to go deeper into the actual real reason someone does something, right? So where the emotional part comes in. So you've mentioned a few things here already about status and that sort of stuff. How do you how do you think about that yourself personally? I mean, do you because you're putting out so much things, you've written twenty books, thousands and thousands of blog posts, <laughs> which we'll talk about a bit later on. Are you are you just genuinely putting stuff out there which is trying to educate and evoke, you know, a different way of thinking for people? Well, I'm really lucky in that I'm not trying to make a living. I am trying to make a difference. Yeah. It turns out that ever since I stopped trying to make a living, I've earned a profit. But that's not why I do it. No. And just as you said with your podcast, it turns out the irony of that is really clear, but it helps me. Every time I lose the focus and say, wow, that could be profitable, it's a mistake. And every time I say, this could be of service, it works. Not every time, often. And this does not mean that generous and free are the same thing. I am not encouraging anybody to give stuff away for free because that devalues so many of the things that we're trying to do and also makes it hard to be resilient and make an impact. But being generous means showing up and offering somebody else dignity and connection and opportunity in a way that requires labor on your part. And too much of what we do in our communities is taking, not seeking to open doors, not seeking to give. Mm, Yeah. And I like, I just, the reason I keep wanting to draw on this is, but a lot of people don't think in that way, um, particularly around the business side or the scale-up side of business. You know, they're thinking, um, I need to make money. I need to make a profit. I need to think of that way, particularly, as I said, in my background, which is private equity, the idea that we're going to provide a great service to someone or make a bigger contribution or make an impact is the opposite conversation that happens at some of those tables. How have you, how have you found that, though? I mean... <laughs> Because like, you know, a lot of business owners would would hear what you're saying and go, well, hold on, I just don't know how I can build something sustainable by that. It's going to take forever, you know, to get something. Can you just go a little bit deeper for us? Just unpack that a bit more because my feeling, even that as well, is like, you know, it's great to serve people, but it's taken a bit of time to build some scale on this podcast. <laughs> and if you're impatient, how do you handle that? Okay, so there's a lot of detail here. The first one is no one should start a podcast if they want to make a living. Podcasting is not a profession. Podcasting is an organized hobby that creates interesting side effects, but it is not the core. Uh, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of podcasts and there might be a thousand podcasters who are making a good living at it. It's not, I mean, I don't make anything from my podcast. I have no idea whether you do or not. But leaving that part aside, let's decide that there are three kinds of companies, organizations we're talking about right now. The first one says, 
I'm in private equity. I move money from one pile to another and I keep a percentage of it as I go. So just be honest about that. That's what you do. You can pretend you're adding value, but you're not. You're playing on a Milton Friedman board, moving pieces around because someone needs to. You have proximity to and, and the benefit of the doubt in certain areas of access to capital. That is not the purpose of culture to enable you to do that. You're able to do it because culture benefits from some of the outputs that other people have. The second thing kind of organization we're talking about is I'm racing to the bottom. I am racing to make things faster and cheaper than everybody else. And I'm not bringing any emotional labor to the table. Instead, I see people want this. I can make it a little bit cheaper. And again, this is one of the effects of capitalism is that once we figure out what a market wants, we can industrialize to continue delivering it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. I don't know if I just broke Zoom. It stopped working. No, you're okay. No, you're coming through fine. Am I okay there as well, Seth? Okay. Yeah, I will ignore what I'm seeing on the screen. As long as you're getting it, I'm happy. No, we're getting it. It's all good. Okay. And then the third one is to say, I'm really fortunate about when I was born and where I was born and what I can do in the world. I'm going to do work that matters for people who care. And one of the side effects of doing it properly will be I will make a profit. But I am not here to make a profit. I need to make a profit to stay in business, but I'm not making decisions about how do I maximize my short-term income. I'm making decisions based on how do I earn trust and the benefit of the doubt. Because if I do that for enough people, profit will occur. It will be a useful side effect. So if you really want to build an organization for the ages, if you want to build a Patagonia, if you want to build a company that people care about, you got to do the third category. You're not allowed to do category one or two and hope that magically you end up with that side effect. So does it take a long time? Yeah. My first year in the book business, I got rejected 800 times in a row. I didn't have a book that actually succeeded and changed people's lives for five or 10 years. And how um, extraordinary it is that some people think that you're entitled to be an overnight success. You're not. Just because those people get highlighted on the Bitcoin news or online or on Inc. Magazine doesn't mean it's happening very often. You have a much better chance of winning the lottery. Yeah. It's, just such, it's just such different thinking, I think, to what you see out there. You know, and that's what I that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you. Just to kind of, you know, shape and hopefully influence some of the people listening to this that not everything has to be hustle, right? Not everything has to be go, go, go all the time. What I'm gonna do now, if that's cool, is um I've had a few people, as I said, ask some questions. And so they are they ask quite specific business questions, and then there's some personal ones as well for you, which is always good. One of the questions here that came through was um assuming Okay, where are we here? Let's talk about scaling a business, specifically scaling marketing. One of the things that you've said consistently for years and has personally impacted my ideas and how I've run a business is the importance of meaning a lot to someone, not a little to everyone. Uh, building a successful business through connection, community, stories, experience, and trust. How would you scale that today? You know, for example, would you do advertising? Would you go out there and post every day on social media? How would you do it? Oh, I definitely would not go out there every day and post on social media. I think that the most extraordinary shift in our culture from a business point of view 
is that you can make a living organizing a community now. Okay. And that is the place to begin. And that is the place to focus. Where are the 100 or the thousand or the 10,000 people who are currently disconnected, who would benefit from being connected because they'll pay you. And if they don't pay you, someone else will pay you that creating these enormous pockets of value is the opportunity of this moment. That's what impresarios do. That's what bootstrappers do. They're able to show up and say, Oh, there's this many people in my town. And if they all shared a common interest and I could represent them to a vendor or I could represent them to a venue or I could represent them to an opportunity, everyone's going to come out ahead. And we're not seeing nearly as much of that as I expected, but the people who lean into it and do it are finding huge upside. Are there some, are there some brands that you respect right now, businesses that you see following that type of focus? Well, as soon as I pick one, they'll do something dumb and then I'll feel bad. Okay. So, and this is timeless, would, remember. <laughs> what, I, what I would say to people is, tell me about a business you care about. Tell me about a logo you wear with pride. Tell me about someone you pay more than you have to for their service, whatever it is that they do. Because you could drive a used Yugo. You could buy some cheap generic thing one click away from the one you usually buy, but you don't. Why not? What is the connection you have to that brand you think is more valuable? That is what I'm talking about. Okay. Makes perfect sense. Okay. Next question was, assuming um, you have a business today and for whatever reason, things aren't working. Okay. Not working in terms of leads, number of customers, cash flow, everything feels chaotic. <laughs> Where do you look first to understand the problem? So what we're talking about here is empathy. Okay. And the thing is, no one knows what you know. No one wants what you want. No one believes what you believe. No one is struggling with the insecurities you struggle with or the exact situation that you are in. That's okay. But if you want to serve anybody, and serve means sell them something, lead them, connect them, you better be able to figure out after you say that's okay, what is driving them? What are they choosing to do? Watch what they do, not what they say. And based on what they do, make some assertions, maybe even some assumptions about what they might want next. And bringing this radical empathy to other people is the key step. So, you know, I grew up uh, near Buffalo, New York, and that was the home of Fisher-Price, which even in Australia, they know Fisher-Price, the toys oh, yeah. for those. <laughs> I'm sure I play with those as a kid, yes. <laughs> and they have, they have a, a preschool there where you can, you know, like watch your kids through a double-sided window or whatever it's called. And uh, I don't think they have any toy designers there who are three years old. All of the toy designers at Fisher-Price are adults. And yet they're busy designing toys for three-year-olds because... They have empathy for what a three-year-old wants. And that's a skill. And that is the skill we need if we're going to open a restaurant or a theater or become a massage therapist or whatever it is. We have to figure out how to imagine what the other person wants. You can be a really successful oncologist without having cancer. In fact, it's probably required. Mm. Okay. Again, just insightful stuff. And you know, to draw on that a little bit sort of further, but if someone's feeling like, you know, 
let's say incredibly overwhelmed, like a lot of people are, they've gone through you know the last couple of years and whatever else, you know, it takes, you know, being quite brave to be able to even lean into that and maybe take yourself out of your own situation. What do you, what do you think is, is the, the move to the move to kind of shift your own sort of thinking around that and your own emotions around that? Well, we're all drowning, right? At some level, people are drowning. And at some level, people are capable of being a lifeguard. Mm. And the cool thing about being a lifeguard is you don't have to be the best lifeguard who ever lived. You just have to be the lifeguard who's standing next to a drowning person. And if you're standing next to a drowning person, you don't look around saying, oh, there must be someone more qualified than me to rescue this person. You simply rescue them. And when you start reincorporating all of this thinking as an opportunity, not as a taking, then suddenly it's possible to do the work. So I'll give you an example that comes up a lot, um, which is people who are hoping to make a living as someone who uses oil paint on canvas. They might call themselves a painter or an artist. And the self-directed way to look at this is to say, I need to paint what's inside of me. And I expect that people will pay a lot of money for the canvases because I put so much into it. And every once in a while, someone succeeds at doing that. But not Susan Rothenberg and not Pablo Picasso and not Jeff Koons. They did something else. They said, the kind of person who collects art, what problems do they have? What are they looking for? What would make someone who collects art decide that this thing I made is something they need to own? Now they can have a narrative over that of, and this is what I feel truly inside. But they also understand they're not entitled to be able to sell a canvas for, you know, 300,000 Australian dollars. Someone who's buying a canvas for $300,000 is not spending $300,000 for the canvas. They're spending $1,000 for the canvas and $299,000 for the story that comes with it. Okay. And how that makes them feel, right? And what that's, okay, got it. Yeah, it's, 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 I think, you know, there's so many different things happening and maybe, maybe this question is quite an interesting one, like marketing, in my opinion, and the way people think about things has evolved so much over the last, say, five to 10 years, different things, different themes coming out. Where, where do you think that's heading? You know, because I, I see more and more people, you made the point beforehand, like I've got two young daughters getting you know, obsessed with things that other people, what they're seeing through social media, it's having an impact on people's health, mental health as well. What do you think, where do you think this is going? If you had a crystal ball looking forward? Well, I'm going to answer the question two different ways. Uh, yeah. And then soon we're going to have to start wrapping up though. I'm really enjoying this. Um, the first one is if you're running a small business, don't worry about tomorrow in terms of trends in terms of what's the next big thing, in terms of augmented reality and all that other stuff. This moment we are in has been here for 20 years. The best time to have started was 20 years ago. The second best time is right now. The ability to connect to individuals who want to hear from you directly, never before in history has it been possible. The ability for people to talk about what you do at scale, never before in history has been possible. Those are the two drivers of the world we live in. The second half of the question though, for people who care about our world and our culture is we are minutes away from completely hitting the wall. And my new project, which I'm a volunteer 
on. Um, I've organized hundreds of people around the world to build an almanac of what's happening to our climate. And what we did for 150 years was underpriced fuel. And so lots of the things we made, including that really cool light on the wall behind you, are cheaper than they should have been because we underpriced the cost of the things that are in them. And there is a generation coming up that is realizing their life won't be anything like our lives were like in when they're our age or even close. And they're saying, don't try to sell me more stuff. And there's more to what I'm going to do today and tomorrow and next year than I need a storage unit to store all my stuff. And there is a new, a huge, huge opportunity right here, right now. And that opportunity is to look at what happens in a world where carbon is priced appropriately and to be of service in offering people the things they're going to need and want in a world where the rules are completely different. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, for me, like, you know, I look at things like NFTs, metaverse, all that sort of stuff. And I, you know, I struggle with kind of where this is heading. <laughs> and then obviously you've got all these other kind of societal and economic impacts, you know, as you look at that, you know, what's, what's your advice to people generally just to, just to kind of not, not get distracted by this stuff and lean into the things that really matter again, and maybe just maybe go a little bit smaller in the way that you're thinking and focus on the things that you can actually affect. Yeah. I mean, I've been on the cutting edge of new media since I got my first email in 1976. I invented the most popular online computer game in the world in the 1990s. I started one of the first internet companies. I've been there. And yeah. what I can tell you is the media loves to make us movie stars out of people who mint NFTs or who have figured out how to make a whole bunch of money in Bitcoin. Almost no one did. Almost no one will. For every person who's going to make $100 in Bitcoin, someone's going to lose $100 in Bitcoin. And you could get really easily distracted chasing the next metaverse augmented reality tech thing. It's a good way to hide from the real work that needs to be done. I don't use Twitter. I don't use Facebook. I don't use Instagram regularly. It's possible to make an impact without worrying about the flavor of the day. It's fun, but you can avoid it if you want to. And as for NFTs and Bitcoin, our children and grandchildren are going to look at us and say, you did what when the world was burning down? Really? We put apes on our t-shirts and things like that and paid, you know, fictitious money that wasn't real for them. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I must say I haven't drunk that Kool-Aid myself. All right, listen, I'm conscious of your time and, and, I, and I know that, uh, you know, you're not feeling 100%. I've got one question for you, though, because I was having some fun before this, right? And that was, I've got, I've got some balls here, right? Okay. Apparently, you're pretty good at teaching people how to juggle. <laughs> so let's go for it. No, you talk a little bit about throwing and catching as a bit of a metaphor for things. And, and I quite like that. So I'd like you just to kind of finish off today by talking about that because- Sure. I, and also, you know, I, I want to go and practice in a bit afterwards about how to do this because I have no idea how to juggle. <laughs> so uh, should we do a video lesson on juggling or just an audio only lesson? Well, this, we're, we're on both here, aren't we? This is going to end up on some, some, oh, actually. Right. I don't, but some people are audio only. So we're going to challenge ourselves to go audio only. Here we go. Do it. I have taught tens of thousands of people how to juggle. 
And if you are willing to spend a couple hours, I can teach you how to juggle. If you are physically capable of doing this, the overcoming the challenge is not that hard. However, almost everyone does it wrong, which is why juggling is viewed as difficult. What high-performing people do when I try to teach, when anyone tries to teach them how to juggle, is they grab three balls, they throw one, they throw another one, they catch one, they throw the third one. But at this point, no matter how naturally talented they are at ball skill, one of the balls is going to be a little bit out of kilter. And they're going to lurch to catch it because they don't like dropping things. And when they lurch to catch it, they might succeed, but now they're totally out of position for the next one. And within 10 seconds, the balls are going to be on the ground because high-performing people think that juggling is about catching. And they spend all their time trying to catch the ball and you can't. Juggling, like life, is about throwing. If you do good throws, the catches will take care of themselves. And so the entire art of juggling is to take exactly one ball, throw it, and catch it for 20 minutes until you are bored to tears, until your throws are perfect, until you can do it with your eyes closed. Then after 20 minutes, we get a second ball and we go throw, throw, catch, catch. Not that hard. Throw, throw, catch, catch for 20 more minutes. And once you've got throw, throw, catch, catch down, completely down because it's so easy because your throws are good. Now you know how to juggle because adding the third ball, you're done. But while I teach a whole bunch of people how to do this, very few put in the hour it takes. They just say, wow, I wish I knew how to juggle instead of leaning into the emotional challenge of learning to throw so that they actually can become a juggler. Okay, there's a metaphor in that for everything, yeah. There is always. <laughs> and to draw back to kind of the theme a bit of our discussion today is, you know, you can't sometimes rush into these things, right? It's about being consistent. It's about doing the work, showing up, right? And then, you know, the rewards for all of that come, you know, when they're well and truly ready to, which I think sometimes. is a good Yeah, and, you know. And, and sometimes suppose, they don't. And if they don't, you get to do it again. Yeah. Awesome. Well, listen, um, Seth Godin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Just as I said at the very beginning, um, the stuff that you have helped me with and helped so many entrepreneurs, business owners, and people with over the world has been outstanding. Final question for you. If people want to reach out or they want to connect with you, what's some of the latest stuff that you're working on that you'd like to, um, to share? Well, I wish I could connect with people, but I'm full. I can't. I'm overwhelmed. So instead of trying to connect with me, I would hope that you would teach somebody else what you've learned from Nick. Um, in terms of my new project, it's at the carbonalmanac.org. And you can read 9,000 blog posts if you type Seth into your favorite search engine. Brilliant. Well, I've had those coming into my inbox for years. <laughs> well, listen, as I said, um, Seth Godin, an absolute pleasure, sir. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And in particular, thank you for coming on and being the very special guest for my 250th episode. I am very grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Keep leading and keep making a ruckus at Matt. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show, 
or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.